The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Um, we continue in uh, what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. And uh, we start today in chapter 7, which is the final chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. Next week we'll finish up our time through uh, this Sermon on the Mount series uh, before we jump several chapters to chapters 27 and 28 where we spend a series in preparation for Easter, for Palm Sunday, uh, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday on April 16th. And so we look forward to that. Uh, keep your ears and eyes open for uh, some announcements on that, uh, that series coming up, as well as details for Easter Sunday and Good Friday service. Uh, so hopefully that'll be a really great time and wanted you to take advantage of that. For now, let's open up our Bibles. Uh, we're going to be starting uh, chapter 7 and reading uh, one, uh, verse 1 to 12. So open up your Bibles, find that place, or follow along as we, as we read here. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one whom knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets." Well, I'm not, a, I'm not a great sermon title maker. Um, I don't really, that's kind of the hardest part of the sermon for me is trying to figure out the title. But this week, it's part 11 of 12 uh, in our series. And, and we've called it Following Jesus, Part 11, Criticism and Prayer. But I want to offer a substitute title, if I could, uh, for this Sunday that I think does a better job of really demonstrating what this, this passage is about. And this is it, Following Jesus, Part 11, Two of Jesus's most misquoted and misunderstood commands in the Bible and how to fix it. Uh, are we okay with that? See, it couldn't fit in the bulletin, and so, so I'm offering that substitute for you this morning. Two of Jesus's misquoted and misunderstood phrases in all the Bible. Judge not, lest you be judged. Just, judge not that you be not judged, and ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. Two of the most misapplied passages in the Bible. Right up there with Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ whom strengthens me, right? For every athlete has that tattooed on their arm that is not about success in sports. And so let's look at this passage, which means to tell us, and, and it's not about Michigan winning, it doesn't matter what you pray for, it, you know. <laughs> I'm done, I promise. Let's look at this passage, and, and, uh, which seeks to tell us about two new relationships that... that followers of Jesus ought to have. Two new relationships that we should come into and grow into. And these two new relationships are this, a new relationship with others and a new relationship with God. And each principle that is 
fleshed out here that Jesus presents, this new relationship with others and the new relationship with God, is given a, a metaphor. So he gives us this principle, and then he says, well, let me tell you what it's like. And he gives us this great tangible, like, Im this great imagery of that we should be thinking about, the metaphor that helps explain it so much better. And so first, how should we understand this new relationship with others? Well, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. What does that mean? Judge not that you be not judged. Well, there's only one situation that, that you will ever hear someone quoting this verse to you, and it's right after the moment that you criticize them for a behavior that you think is undesirable. And how has the culture really, how has the culture today used this passage and this idea, don't judge, don't judge anyone, right? The Bible says don't judge or God will judge you. Well, the, the culture has come to define it, this principle in this way. Do not judge has come to mean this. Never negatively evaluate the behavior of another person. So when someone says, hey, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, what they're saying is, Never negatively evaluate the behavior of somebody else. And you understand that if this is truly what it means, then you could never, under any circumstances, ever use this passage without sinning. Do you see what I mean? If you criticize someone's negative behavior and then reply with, hey, the Bible says, uh, judge not lest you be judged. What you're doing is, in that statement, you're judging their negative behavior and telling them to stop doing that. And so around and around we go. So, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Well, you shouldn't judge. Well, you shouldn't judge me for judging. And then on and on we go. And the argument, <laughs> the argument never, ever ends. To say you should never judge anyone for their beliefs or behaviors is like saying, I have no patience for impatient people. <laughs> I have no tolerance for those who are intolerant of others. I'm absolutely certain that there are no certainties in life. That one takes a little longer. You'll get it. <laughs> but Jesus would have us think, what he have us think about is that we, is not that we should not criticize, but how we criticize. And why is it that we criticize? And what are our motives when we criticize? When you criticize, are you, are you criticizing in order to win a person to the truth? Are you pointing out the, the flaws and sins of another person to win them over as a friend? Are you doing it to, to rescue them from error because you love them? Or are you criticizing to punish? Are you criticizing to condemn, to put a person in their place? Are you criticizing to prove that, that, that you are better than that person at that very thing that you have pointed out in their life? Do you criticize because you're just so fed up with that person that they need to know how you feel about that thing and it's not okay for them to continue in that behavior that annoys you so much. Jesus says you should never treat people like that. We know this by this, this great metaphor, this amazing metaphor that Jesus uses. What a great teacher that he is. What a great shepherd and pastor. What a great leader that he is to help us understand God's desire and will. And, and when it comes to speaking truth in love to people. He uses this metaphor of the speck and the log in someone's eye. How should we criticize? Well, picture the guy with a speck in his eye. You know, join Jesus in, in this metaphor. This speck in an eye is not, not easy to live with, is it? It's painful. It kind of 
You can't really go on with your day and on with your life when you have a speck in your eye. If you wear contact lenses, you know that even the smallest little fiber and dust particle underneath the lens of your contact lens touching your eye is unbearable, is it not? And you cannot do anything without getting that speck out of your eye. You cannot function. You cannot go on with your day and you cannot see. It becomes very difficult. If an eyelash or a small bug flies into your eye, you need someone to come and to help you and carefully remove that. And so here you are with a speck in your eye and, and here comes along this other guy. Right? Here comes a guy walking towards you, a man with a two-by-four sticking out of his eye with a hammer in one hand and a chisel in the other and runs to you and says, hey, I can help with that speck and starts just like hitting, over, hitting you over the head with his tools. Ridiculous. This is the imagery that Jesus gives to us. He, we ought to say, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. That's not how you help somebody with a speck in their eye. Not only is this person in, incapable of helping because he himself is blinded by his own speck, his own problem, he's likely to do only more harm to the person he's trying to help. And so here are a few observations and implications of this for this principle. One is be careful how you criticize. How would you attempt to get a splinter, a speck, out of somebody's eye? Very carefully, of course. Very carefully. You would do it with a tissue. You would do it with a, a cotton swab. You would do it with a Q-tip. You'd, you'd go in very carefully and slowly. And you would assure the person that you're there not to harm them, but to help them. And you would say, stay still and look to your left. And I, I can almost see it. And very carefully. And it might take you a long time to get that out. But when you do, there's immediate relief and gratitude for it. There must be a desire to, to help heal the person of what is making it difficult for them to see. You know, Jesus, by trade, was a carpenter. You know, in addition to being the Savior of the world and the Redeemer of God's elect, he, met, he, he made little hobby horses and dining room furniture, and he was a carpenter. And you'd have to imagine that this analogy, this metaphor for him, comes from personal experience. How many times you spend time in the, in the woodworking shop, and he or somebody he's working with gets a speck of sawdust in their eye. And he sees people trying to help that person. The person can no longer work. They cannot longer function until somebody comes alongside and helps. And how ridiculous it would be if someone just came up and just started slapping you in the eye trying to get this speck out of their eye. And how crazy would it be if he's in the woodworking shop and a colleague gets a speck in their eye and someone gets impaled with a two-by-four comes over to try to help. And he's like, dude, you've got to help yourself before you try to help me. Be careful how you criticize. There's this tag-along metaphor uh, to accentuate this principle in verse 6 where he says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's telling us something about the value of the help, the value of the instruction and correction. It should be sweet and life-giving. It is like medicine that can heal. So be thoughtful in how you give it. Consider receiving like pain medicine or anesthetic at the doctor's office. There's, there are physicians who give their entire living work to, to discriminating well how to give this kind of medicine, this powerful medicine to help others. Because if you give too much, it'll kill the person. If you give too little, that person will continue to live in pain and agony. 
And so no doctor would say, are you hurting? Are you in pain? You're going into surgery. Well, let's just eyeball this, and yeah, that looks like about right. Let's use this much morphine. No, they would weigh you. They would take your blood. They would ask about your family history. They would, they would, they're a right to discriminate when giving something good to that person. And if you don't, if you give correction, if you give criticism, or even seek to help someone who's hurting, you could harm them instead. Or you could, they could turn and harm you. If you do not think well about the person that you are giving and how to give help appropriately and how to speak truth to that person, it could be like giving pearls to pigs that turn and harm you. You know, I'm a, I'm a dog lover. Some of you are dog lovers. No one was a dog lover in the time that this was written. They weren't pets that sat on our laps. They were scavengers. They hung out at, you know, at garbage, at garbage heaps, and they ate on dead carcass, carcasses. They licked people's wounds because they were scavengers. And pigs, they were, they were pigs. I want you to think of a javelina more than like, you know, babe, you know, pig in a city. <laughs> I don't want you to think of this cute little pink pig walking around Jerusalem. I want you to think of like a javelina, just a scavenger, this nasty animal. Jesus is saying, judge if you have a listener that can take your criticism. Judge if you have willing ears to hear your correction. Don't take criticism or advice. Don't take the good of God's truth to those who are overly antagonistic to what you have to say. Not only will they not appreciate it, they will be upset at you for throwing them something that they didn't want at all. So Jesus is saying, discern. Be careful. Don't just, just because you have a thought in your head and somebody is living in a way that you don't like, don't just throw it out there. It could harm you, it could harm them. But even with this discomfort, you see, even with this discomfort, another principle is this, don't give up telling people the truth. Don't give up just because it's difficult, just because there's danger there of getting it wrong. Don't give up doing it. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I just... Pete, this is a great passage for me. I just, I just remove the difficulty in this passage and just never point out anyone's faults. I, I never criticize people. I never criticize people wrongly because I never criticize at all. I mean, I just don't like to rock the boat. I mean, come on, like, we're all messy. We all have problems. I mean, let, I want you to live your life and, and let me live my life. I don't want to get in people's business. And after all, I'm not really an expert on righteousness. I mean, I have weaknesses, and so who am I to point out the faults of other people? Well, if that's the case, if we think like that, then you're not loving anyone. This passage depicts a relationship with others in which we're so deeply concerned with their spiritual well-being that we would enter into that place. We would seek to help, that we would point out faults, and we would criticize in a loving way because we care about that person's spiritual well-being because when there's a speck in our friend's, our brother's eye, it is... It is, that's a, like an analogy for, a, for spiritual blindness. We're not able to see. We're, we're wounded in a sense that we cannot function as God has desired us to function. It's a sort of spiritual blindness that keeps us from loving and enjoying God the way we are meant to. And so for you, if you are thinking, well, I'm just not good at this, and I just rather assume never to point out people's faults. Jesus would have us believe that there are times, there are times to point out the sins of others. There are times to receive correction ourselves from others, and this is very good. 
But lastly, for this implication of this passage is be more aware of your sins and flaws than you are of the sins and flaws of others. See, this is obvious where Jesus goes when he says, Why is it that you notice the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is just protruding out of your own eye? He's talking about people that are far more sensitive to the flaws of others than they are about the flaws of themselves. They are far more keen and aware of everyone else's mistakes than they are of their own flaws and mistakes and sins. The log in your own eye? I heard this fun fact a couple weeks ago. Did you know that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 you know, days a year, all the time, uh, you can always see your nose, right? But no one's thinking, no one comes to you, hey, why are you so bummed out today? Oh, I'm just tired of looking at my nose all day. Because your brain sees it all the, I'm getting there, please, you know. Your brain, I promise I'm arriving at some kind of conclusion. Your brain always sees it. Your eyes always register it, but your, your brain decides to ignore it because it is always there. No one is annoyed by having to see, now you, now you can't ignore your nose. <laughs> I, know, I know, I do, oh my goodness. No one is annoyed to having to see their own nose all day long because we just, we don't, we don't notice it. It's so familiar to us. It's possible to be so annoyed with the sins of others than we are with our own sins. How can this be? Because we we have become so familiar with our own flaws. We don't even notice it anymore. And it is to us like a log. It's like a log that and other people look at it and say, well, man, you got problems too. You're like, well, not compared to your speck. Like, dude, you have, a, you have like a, a beam, like a, like a load-bearing beam in your, out of, coming out of your eye. This depiction could be in the beams that they use in the New Testament construction, like something as much as 24 feet wide and five feet, 24 feet long and five feet wide. I mean, like a tree. And we're trying to talk it away and say, well, we all have faults. No, you have like, like an aspen coming out of your eye. <laughs> and here's why. why, why the question is, why, why do we become so more sensitive to the needs of others than we are to, I mean, to the sins of others than we are to our own sins? And, and the answer might hurt you a little, but this is the truth. We're more aware of the sins of others than we are of our own because we are full of ourselves. We're full of ourselves. Sin causes us to think of ourselves as, as not needing God, as somehow that we have graduated from God's grace. Sin, the plank, causes us to be so spiritually blind that we think that we have, we have got the grace of God and God has changed us and we are now righteous. And so therefore, we're, God has placed us in this world to help other people be like us. We're full of ourselves. We allow ourselves to act like hypocrites, as Jesus would call us, who argue for a right way to live and then explain away all of our unrighteousness. We tend to allow many reasons why we are the way we are. Well, I was tired that day, or I was hungry, or I was misunderstood, or I didn't really understand the situation fully, and I wasn't able to give a good assessment. But we allow no wiggle room for other people's mistakes. We never jump to a conclusion and think, well, they may have a good answer for why they did what they did. But we always believe that we have a good answer for why we do what we do, because we're full of ourselves. We teach grace, and yet we're so ungracious to others. We give advice on how to forgive others, and then we harbor bitterness in our own hearts towards those who have hurt us. 
We attack others when we think that we've been offended, when we think that we've been slighted. We hate having to wait on other people. We think too much about our own pleasure. We envy those who, who have what we want. We pout when something good that we have done goes unnoticed. We hate inconveniences of every kind. We are obsessed with thinking about what is best for us in our life and what will make us happy. We're full of ourselves. And what is the criticism that comes from a hypocrite? Here's the criticism that comes from a hypocrite. It is criticism that is combined with a lack of compassion for others and a lack of awareness of one's own faults. Let me repeat that. It's criticism that is combined with a lack of compassion for others and a lack of awareness of one's own faults. Criticism that comes from that, Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. You're so full of yourselves. If you want to be a person who helps, don't you, don't you want to be a, a person who helps? I mean, if you're hearing this, don't you want to be the kind of person who actually can help people with the specks in their eyes? Wouldn't you want to be the person that when you see somebody hurting or in sin, that you would come gently to them and help them, and then they would look at you and say, thank you for helping me. I couldn't get that out on my, my own. I was incapable of finding it, and it was just destroying my life. And thank you for coming and being gentle and helping me with my sin. You need to be humble. You need to be aware of your specks. I think this is a good time in the sermon to tell you something about myself. That this is something I am so bad at. You know, this passage, as I study and I'm aware of this, this passage is not a passage that inspires me. This is a passage that convicts me. It is quite a thing to open up your Bible and to read Scripture and looking for the comfort of God, and what you hear is Jesus calling you a hypocrite. This may be even my chief sin in my life, is failing to do what God wants me to do in this passage. I assume that maybe there are others like me. Please say that there are. <laughs> there are others like me that fail at this. There are others like me that are really bad at this. I assume that there are some of you who are very bad at this, that you see that you're full of yourself. I assume this because we all have ways of looking at things. We all have ways of, of looking at a way of life and of seeing things in our life and doing things. It's incredibly difficult to see things and people and do things in a way that's different from how we have always known to do things. And if we spent our whole entire lives full of ourselves, it's hard to see things in other ways. You know, the Christian life is one often lived in this uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, intense place between these two places. One place is where we used to be, and the next place is where God wants us to be. And so we say, well, I used to be, you know, God has saved me and I've received his grace and I trust that Jesus has died for my sins and I'm forgiven and redeemed and thank you, God, that I'm not the man or woman that I used to be. But then God shows you a picture of who he wants you to be and you say, I'm not even close to that. And the Christian life is just spent there in the middle, grateful for where you once were, but, but, but agonizing over who you want to be. And you have shame in the midst of that and guilt. 
And you just want to, you, you, you want to work at this. You want to be better at this. Don't you feel stuck sometimes? I know I do. You really feel that you want to be that person. It may not even be this sin or this flaw. It is for me. Like I said, this is probably the number one, the chief sin in my life. I don't know what yours is, but maybe it's that thing and you're saying, I just want to get better at that. I want to get over this. I want to grow to be like Jesus. What is wrong with me? We need help. We need help if we're going to be the kind of people who can come alongside our brothers and sisters and sharpen them and help them. Do you feel stuck? Do you feel like you really want to be that person, but you're discouraged? Well, I told you that there were two relationships that Jesus wants to tell us about that are new. Our relationships with others, and the second one is our relationship with God. This is where our help comes from. If you feel discouraged, if you feel that you're lacking, if you are just tired of making the same sins and mistakes over and over again, if you want, if you want good, life-giving, horizontal relationships with other people, Maybe you think, I want to grow in this area. I want to treat people better. This comes from a vertical relationship with God. You cannot give to others what you have not received from God and what you are not continually receiving from God. The fuel, the, the relationship with God, this vertical relationship with Him in persistent prayer is what fuels our relationship with other people. Verse 7 says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You know, Pete, I've done this. You know, for a long time I wanted that promotion. I asked God for that promotion. I sought after it. I knocked a hundred times, and I didn't get it. Has God forgotten about me? That's not what this verse is about. I'm sorry. Jesus is teaching us not about how to get things that we want, Jesus is teaching us how to get things that God wants to give to us. This is about growing in our relationship with the Father, who's a good Father, who has good things to give to us. It cannot be about us at the center. This passage is not about putting ourselves at the center of our universe and saying, God, when are you going to serve me? I've been asking and knocking and seeking, and you still haven't given me what I wanted. It may be because the Father is saying, because I love you so much, I'm going to give you what I want for you. You're full of yourself. You need to be full of me. So if the problem with our relationship with people is that we are full of ourselves, we cannot approach God as people who are still full of ourselves. We cannot say, God, I'm really struggling with selfishness, and so I want to pray to you, and here's a list of all the things that I want. You're still doing it. You're still doing it. You're still selfish. You're still full of yourself. But we want to say, God, help me. When we see our log in our own eye, it makes us spiritually, that makes us spiritually blind. If we see ourselves as the hypocrite and we say, wow, I've been pointing out the specks in other people's eyes and I have this two by four in mine, our natural response would say, God, help me. Okay, God, I'm ready to listen to you. Help me. And only then are we under, able to understand what Jesus is leading us into in verse 7 through 11. We come to God asking for good things from the Father in heaven. Not good things from the world. 
You remember last week what we talked about in the previous passage just preceding this? What was it about? It was about Jesus saying, don't seek the, the treasures of this earth, but store up your treasures in heaven and seek first the kingdom of God and, and all of these things will be given to you. See, Jesus just got done saying, set your heart on God's things. And now he is saying, now you can ask God for God's things and he will give it to you. God desires to give you all of his treasures of the kingdom What's keeping you from asking? James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, you don't have because you have not asked. This is what James says when he's talking about wisdom, he's talking about the treasures of the kingdom. He said, you know why you don't have it? Because you haven't asked God for it. What is Jesus saying to us? And, and I think when we realize it, I, I think it'll astound us. I think it'll amaze us. It, it amazes me. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you ask God for anything, anything that rescues you from an attitude and behavior of self-love and self-dependence and pray for something that makes you more like Jesus, he will do it every single time. Does that amaze you? He is saying if you ask for anything according to the will of God that will make you grab onto more of the treasures of kingdom, he will do it every single time. If I told you that behind this door back here, behind this door was the cure for the stuff of shame and guilt in your life, the stuff that goes way deep down into your heart that no one knows about, but that you hate about yourself. And I said, just beyond that closed door is the cure for all that ails you for your selfishness and self and controlling attitude and self-righteousness and unteachability and paralyzation that comes from what people think about you in a negative way and the fear of man and the anger that you carry with yourself all the time. Just go to that door and beyond that door is the cure for everything that causes you shame and guilt. And you go to that door and, and I go out of your sight and you come back and and I say, hey, did you go to the door? And you're like, yeah, I sure did. I say, well, how was the gift? How was it behind that door? And you're like, you know, I jiggled the handle and it seemed to be locked. And so I just kind of gave up. What? You just jiggled it? You should jiggle it. And if that doesn't work, you should, you should pound on it. And if that doesn't work, you should put your back into it. You know? And if that doesn't work, you should kick it in. And if that doesn't work, you should find a window. And if that doesn't work, you should drill a hole in the ceiling and just fall in on the other side. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, I tried and I asked God, keep doing it. He desires to give you his good things. It's not that God desires, it's not that our Father in heaven is playing hide and seek. He's not saying like, come and find me. Where, where am I? Oh, come on, just show me where you are. He is not playing hide and seek with us. But we have been so conditioned by our sin to seek our own pleasure. He's teaching us to seek Him, to seek after Him in persistent prayer, where we are being drawn away from our interests and drawn away from ourselves. We're so full of ourselves. And in this persistent prayer, He is training us to think less of ourselves and more of Him. And when we pray like Jesus has taught us to pray, we'll be drawn into a relationship where we are shaped by Him and what matters most to Him. So really, what this means in prayer is this. Be careful what you pray for. Because possibly the most dangerous prayer you can pray to your self-righteousness is this prayer. 
God, make my life more about you and less about me. Because if you do that, he will. And it'll destroy you. And it'll hurt. And it'll tug at all the things that you treasure and all the things that you care about. And you will cry out, as every Christian does, say, God, take away my selfishness. Make me more like you. And he says, you got it. And then he starts to do it, and we, and we say, wow, this is really hard being a Christian. It's really hard following Jesus. Actually, it's bringing up a lot of things that I didn't want to be bringing up. Hey, Jesus, can I just be in this like, comfortable place where we have this ag agreement, where I get to go to heaven, and yet I get to still be full of myself and treat people every way I want? He says, that's not how it works. He must change us. I love the order of these 12 verses, concluding with the golden rule. Right As we, come, we come, have come to know about the golden rule, which is verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You may have heard it like that. There's a, there's a good chance that you're not loving others well. Listen to this. Listen to the, the order. The order of this, of the three passages we just read, this whole section is, there's a good chance you're a jerk. Okay? There's a good chance you're, you're not treating people well. You need to seek God and, and, and get what he will, desires to give you. And now you can love others well. This is the order. The order is not this. You're a jerk, don't be a jerk. You're a jerk, don't be a jerk. Treat other people like you want to be treated. And do some really spiritual things in your life just to kind of fill the time that you have. Do you see the difference here? See, this is, this is what religion says. Religion says this. You're a jerk, be better, do a bunch of holy things. You're a sinner, don't sin as much, go to church. That's what religion says. That's what every religion says. There's something wrong with you. Let there be less wrong things about you and do a lot of spiritual things in your life. But Christianity says this, something completely different, something radically different than every other religion. It says this, you're a jerk and God loves you anyway. And your heavenly father loves you and he wants to make you new. And he does this by giving you the good gifts of the kingdom. He, give, he does this by giving you undeserving grace. He gives you Jesus. He died in your place for your sins that you would no longer live a life full of yourselves, but now live a life honoring to God and loving for others. And it will change you from a jerk to a person who actually loves others and treats other people as you yourself desire to be treated. Do you see the order and why it's so important? This is the gospel. This is what we call the good news of the grace of God. That he takes our sin. He does not shy away from calling us hypocrites. He shows us our hope in Jesus and in this relationship with him, receiving his undeserved grace so that we would then obey verse 12, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this is the law of the prophets. This is everything the Bible talks about. Isn't this, this is awesome. That's like, Verse 12, do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. This is the law of the prophets. That's like, in one verse, I just told you what the entire Bible is about. But you still have to come back next week. We still have to keep learning. But Because there, there's more. Verse 12 is this summary of the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God simply explains this. God, what do you want? What do you desire? What is it that pleases you? And when you pray... Are you praying for what you desire, or are you praying to receive what God desires for you? 
That's a test for your prayer life. When you go and pray, are you just praying for things that you want God to do for you that you want? Or are you praying and saying, God, what is it that you desire so that I can do, desire those things? What is, it, what is your will? And Jesus teaches us to pray that we might see him for who he truly, truly is. A good father, creator of all that there is that desires to give his children good things. He desires us to pray to, to know who he is so that we can know who we are and be true about who we are. And who are we? We're hypocrites in great need of help. So that we can receive all the good that he has given to us. His son, who knew no sin, became our sin, that he might become our ransom, that he might die for our sins and give, give us God's forgiveness. So that, out of an overflow of that grace and that new life and that new desire and that new love from God, that it would overflow into attitudes and actions and behaviors and love for other people. The God of, of awesome grace is a God not only of, of past and future grace, but a God of present grace as well. His present grace does, does for you and I what we cannot do for ourselves. It rescues you from you. It rescues me from me. His grace opens blind eyes and recaptures numb hearts. Our problem with others is not that people don't see things our way. It is that we don't see ourselves or others God's way. And this is why Jesus had to come. This is why Jesus is our only piece of hope. When we humbly accept the very bad news of our hypocrisy, will we be able to humbly and zealously seek the very good news of God's grace. And because Jesus' work for us, because of his work on the cross, his grace is ours for the taking. Do you want that? Do you realize what it will do for you? Do you realize it is your only sliver of hope and it is abundant? Then won't you seek after it? Won't you knock? Won't you keep searching? Won't you be persistent in pursuing God and say, God, would you make me? Like Jesus, would you continue grace upon grace, transform my heart, my life, my attitudes, my thoughts, my beliefs, my desires, the way I treat people, to be life-giving, to be like you. That is the great call of every Christian. That's what he calls us into. And so if this passage is one of great conviction for you as it is for me, then you also have great, you also have great news here to be inspired of the order of God's instruction. It's not, you're a jerk, don't be a jerk, and just go to church and everything will hope you'll be better. It says, you are a jerk. God's, God's grace is sufficient for you, and he will change you. Seek him, be persistent. Let's pray together.